0: This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chetka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Hernias are commonly seen in the outpatient practice, and inguinal hernias account for about 75% of abdominal wall hernias and represent the third leading cause of outpatient visits for GI complaints. Repair of inguinal hernias, one of the most common procedures in general surgery. We'll be discussing hernias today. And with us is Dr. David Farley, a general surgeon at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. David, welcome. Thank you, Darrell. Well, let's start by talking about the most common types of hernias. I think we think of inguinal hernias, but there's uh, actually quite a few different types, aren't there?
1: There are. Uh, Inguinal hernias, by far, the most common. Maybe 700,000 are repaired every year in the United States alone. Any incision that's created can oftentimes break down, so an incisional hernia is very common in the abdomen. Uh, we also see umbilical hernias, and then more rare things, spigelian hernias and lumbar hernias, but they're very common. More than a million hernias are repaired every year in the United States.
0: Well, I think we see a lot of inguinal hernias, and I've always been amazed that some patients have a fair amount of symptoms from them, and others, despite the relatively large size are asymptomatic. Any idea why some cause discomfort and others don't?
1: Yeah, you know, it's fascinating. There are sometimes that uh, the defect, the internal ring or the direct hernia, is small and it's narrow and things get stuck, omentum or bowel, and it can be very painful. We've got other p- patients, typically men more than women, very large hernia is completely asymptomatic. Uh, bulge slides back and forth. I think obesity and size make a difference sometimes, but there is no rhyme, no reason. You can have a big hernia that's very symptomatic or you can
0: have a big hernia that really doesn't cause any problems.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: In making a diagnosis of an inguinal hernia, we'll stick with that uh, type for now, uh, is anything more than a physical exam and history needed? Sometimes. But most of
1: the times the history is as good as anything. Somebody wakes up in the morning, feels just fine. And as the day progresses, they get achy, throbby, and then eventually a bulge in the groin that they notice typically in the shower. Um, so that's a history is important. And then the physical exam to see if there's a pulsation or a bulge mm-hmm. down there at the external ring.
0: When would imaging studies be needed, and what kind of imaging studies would be obtained?
1: Yeah, in, in my practice, maybe 10% of the time or less, I'm going to get a, either a CT scan or an ultrasound. There's a lot of folks that like the ultrasound, but you're basing that on the ultrasound tech and the people reading it at the time and how good that the patient can give you a cough or strain. Uh, it's not a perfect test, but it's cheap, and it's uh, mm-hmm. it has no radiologic effects, no radiation. If I'm really struggling with something, I get a CT scan because it's pretty obvious and straightforward from there.
0: And would those be indicated when patients have typical symptoms but we really don't find much on exam? That's
1: one f- for sure. Uh, the, the, if the story is good, typically the patients are right. They're, they're telling you they have a hernia. But if you're not sure, or oftentimes there's redo operations, and then it becomes more scarred and difficult in my exam, I'm not sure if that's a fatty lipoma or an actual hernia or right. just scar tissue. Having a CT scan is a
0: very valuable tool. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about incisional hernias. Uh, We don't see those often, but occasionally. Why would some patients get an incisional hernia and others don't?
1: Well, first and foremost, as surgeons, we're always nervous that we didn't close it up properly. So if you made a midline incision to take out a piece of colon, you've got to sew the fascia back together again, and you have to do it well. And if it's done poorly, it will break down, and you'll get a hernia. Then we go on, if the surgeon does sew it up well, um, then we think about, all right, somebody that smokes, the blood supply to the fascia is less, there's more coughing, there's more constipation, those people will be at a higher risk. Somebody that's gaining weight is going to put stress on that. Anything that puts pressure or um, strain on the abdominal wall. So somebody that's out there as a farmer, that's heavy lifting, throwing hay bales around, they really need to take it easy for four to six weeks unless this fascia heal back together again. Mm -hmm. Do those need to be repaired when we find them? Not everyone, no, but um, hernias get bigger with time. They don't heal themselves. They don't go backwards. Um, So it's going to be something that may be problematic. There are people out there that can't um, undergo general anesthesia because that's typically what you need to repair those. For those people that are sick and ill, an abdominal binder works pretty doggone well. Mm
0: -hmm. How about umbilical hernias? Why do some patients develop those? Well, we're all made
1: that way. We have a little defect to start with. Um, Kids, as they develop, can have a hernia early on, and they're the only people that I know of that can fix a hernia. So sometimes children, infants can have an umbilical hernia, and mom and dad can get excited, and you could wait a couple years, and that hernia will go away. But the rest of us, as we progress through life, again, gaining weight, constipation, coughing, sneezing, there's inherently a small little defect that all of us have at the umbilicus. And over time, that stretches out with some folks, and then you get omentum and other tissue popped through there. And they can be incredibly painful, and although uncommon, they can be dangerous. You can get bowel caught in there and get strangulated. And so there are times when we do fix umbilical hernias.
0: And others we, we see quite commonly are asymptomatic, and is it safe to leave those people alone? Or Absolutely, absolutely.
1: Typically, that little defect that's uh, there will be plugged up by omentum, fatty tissue that all of us have unless we've had an operation that's removed our omentum. Somebody has had an ovarian procedure or a colon operation, but the rest of us mostly have omentum. It'll fill
0: that tissue up, and it's supposed to block holes, and that's exactly what it does. Mm-hmm. I know that Inguinal hernias are far more common in men than women, but one type of hernia that women tend to get are femoral hernias, and I've been fooled by one patient in particular that I can think of shortly after I started on staff. She came in with a uh, inguinal bulge, and it was very localized, and to me it felt exactly like a reactive lymph node, and uh, she was complaining of mild tenderness. I watched her for a week, wasn't improving, turned out to be a femoral hernia. Mm -hmm.
1: Femoral hernias um, get our attention a bit because for some reason, I don't know why, Daryl bowel gets caught in there. Probably because the omentum can't quite stretch down far enough to protect that spot. But uh, women especially, elderly women, thin women, are at uh, greater risk for that. And there's no question there's more common than uh, men. Having said that, I operated on a young man bilateral inguinal hernias and we were doing this laparoscopically at that time i look in there and i can see an incarcerated femoral hernia a piece of preperitoneal fat and he complained about achiness i think quite honestly his direct inguinal hernias that were larger were asymptomatic mm-hmm. he was actually vaguely complaining about this achiness that turned out to be an incarcerated femoral hernia mm-hmm.
0: Well, since femoral hernias, uh, we probably need to identify those. How do you separate those from the traditional inguinal hernias?
1: So as you think about examining a patient um, on physical examination, if that bulge that you were feeling that you thought was a lymph node in that lady, if it's below that line where the symphysis pubis, the top of the pubic bone, if it's inferior to that region, you got to think about uh, a femoral hernia. The femoral hernia, oftentimes, when it presents, will be stuck. It's rare that it pops in and out. So when you get somebody with a mass in the groin in the femoral canal, which would mean it's just medial to the femoral vein, you palpate the femoral artery, you slide medial a little bit, if there's a bulge right there, you at least need to be thinking that that's a femoral hernia.
0: Okay. Now, to traditional inguinal hernias, what's the difference between an indirect and a direct inguinal hernia? Uh, basically, it's the
1: location related to the epigastric artery and vein. There's a deep, inferior epigastric artery and vein that comes off the external iliac, and it kind of runs at an angle toward the belly button, and it makes a triangle, so-called hesselbox triangle. And if it comes through that medially, that's a direct hernia. As I think about it, those are kind of the hernias that farmers get, that hardworking people get, and it just weakens and pushes through. Most people will have an indirect hernia, something that the hernia sac has probably been there since birth, quite honestly. And it's taken some time before it pushes through. And that'll be lateral going through what's called the internal ring.
0: Do they present about the same way? Would we know the difference by looking at the patient?
1: Typically not. There are times on a physical examination when you put your finger up there at the external ring that I get a sense that I can just put my finger straight through as opposed to having to meander a little bit lateral and cephalad to get to the internal ring, but most times there's really no difference, and the repair is basically identical. Mm.
0: Today's podcast is sponsored by Mayo Clinic's Online CME. Go to ce.mayo.edu onlinecme online CME to see the full list of course offerings. Join us weekly here at Mayo Clinic Talks as we discuss best practices and burning questions. Subscribe today using Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever app you're currently using. You mentioned earlier that umbilical hernias in children can sometimes resolve on their own. Is that the only Example of a hernia resolving on its own? Do, do others go away?
1: Yeah, they really don't. They really don't. As we age, we cough, we sneeze, we bear down, we strain. That weakness is a hole, and you can do all the sit-ups you want, and you're going strength, to strengthen the muscle around it, but that hole
0: can't get stronger, so it's going to get bigger. The mm-hmm. muscle's going to stretch it. All right, biggest question of the morning here. When do we decide when somebody needs to have a hernia repaired?
1: So first and foremost, the patient needs to be fit enough to tolerate whatever the procedure is, and that can be done under a tended local anesthetic or a general anesthetic. Is it symptomatic? Is it painful? Is it problematic? Um, And if they can tolerate the procedure and they're bothered by it, then I would recommend that it be fixed. There are some people that um, have very narrow little hernias that things pop in and out or they gurgle. We get a sense that bowel's in there. They may not be symptomatic, but that's something that I tend to lean to say, Okay, it's not bothering you, but you need to understand when this thing pops out and it's you can't reduce it. That's something that needs to be acted on. So symptoms, and then uh, symptoms that at least for me bother me is potentially we're going to strangulate, get a piece of bowel or bladder in there.
0: How about one's lifestyle? Uh, would you be more likely to operate on somebody who does heavy lifting versus somebody who's uh, sitting at a desk all day, or does that not
1: matter? Not, not necessarily. I mean, there are times when people come in, uh, the military gets a physical, and a young man that's 25 and has an asymptomatic hernia, and he's going to go to Iraq or Iran or wherever, and he's going to be working hard. I'm not a- chomping at the bit to fix a hernia in an asymptomatic young man. They can get chronic groin pain. Having said that, I have my tension when an umbilical or inguinal hernia and in a farmer that's straining and lifting, if it remotely bothers them, this is not gonna get better and at some point should be fixed. Mm-hmm.
0: What's the risk in patients who don't want these repaired? What What problems can happen later on?
1: Yeah. So over time, the hernia likely going to get bigger and may become symptomatic. Uh, We've done multiple studies, national studies here in the United States about watchful waiting or observation. And it's a very reasonable thing. I don't like operating on young men that are asymptomatic. They have a high risk of chronic groin pain. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, as you've done with the, the patient you told earlier, we need to follow these people up and don't be shy. Call me back if there's a problem. If the bulge get bigger, whatever the case may be, we can always fix that thing. But we don't have to. And the risk of fixing a hernia is low, but you can get mesh infections, you can have pain, you can have a variety of problems.
0: There has been a revolutionary uh, change in the management of these with laparoscopic surgery. How has that changed your uh treatment for uh, for inguinal hernias
1: gives me another tool and quite honestly I like it best if given the choice the optics are fantastic the repair is a little bit more meticulous having said that you find a hundred hernia surgeons and you'll get a hundred different answers on exactly the best way to use these things Most people are getting a mesh repair, so-called a Lichtenstein hernia repair. That's from the front, that's a bigger incision, but it's outpatient surgery, people do beautifully. Uh, Some of the anesthetics we have now are wonderful and people are back to work in days. We're typically not waiting weeks. Laparoscopy, from my standpoint, one of the real advantages, I get to look at both sides. And when I fix a hernia on one side and I look to the other side, even in somebody that's asymptomatic, about a third of the time, there'll be a small defect there. And our problem is, once you fix one side, now the path of least resistance is the other side. If there's a hernia there, I like to get rid of it so they don't have to come back three years from now and do it again. Sure.
0: Why wouldn't you use laparoscopic surgery for all patients? Why would you need need an open procedure? Yeah, great question. A couple different
1: reasons. First and foremost, number one, if you can't tolerate general anesthesia, you shouldn't have a laparoscopic procedure. Now, there's some places around the country that do this with some spinal anesthesia and whatnot, but I'm a big fan of laparoscopy. You need to be relaxed, and that's an important consideration. There are some patients that do not want to be put to sleep, so therefore I don't offer laparoscopy. Um, The outpatient procedure under attended local works very nicely. People wake up better from attended local anesthesia than general anesthesia. Some people have an aura of and feel cruddy for days because of it. Um, If given the choice, I like to do it
0: laparoscopically if the patient can tolerate general anesthesia. You mentioned mesh a while ago, and that's been another advance in the uh, management of uh, hernias. Is Mesh used routinely now?
1: It is, it is the gold standard. The risk of uh, recurrence is clearly lower, Uh, but there are times that some people come to me and said, I will not accept Mesh, I'm nervous about Mesh, and then we do our best and I tell them the risk of recurrence is slightly higher, so you gotta behave yourself and avoid the grunting and constipation and coughing.
0: Mm -hmm. What are the potential complications of using Mesh?
1: Well, number one, like with an open hernia repair without mesh, you can cause pain. Sometimes we think it is the mesh that causes the pain. Uh, big studies would suggest there's no difference in pain between open and uh, without mesh and with mesh. Mesh can get infected. It's a foreign body. For whatever reason, in the inguinal region, in the groin, it's protected. It's uncommon. I bet I've fixed three, four, 5,000 hernias, and I can think of one gentleman that had an inguinal infection of the mesh, but it is there. Uh, Sometimes mesh can move. Sometimes mesh gets stuck with bowel to it. Usually in the inguinal region, that's not a problem. So most times mesh, it's not a big deal for
0: us. Mm -hmm. My practice is mostly elderly. And in the past, I would occasionally see an older man come in with a truss, Uh, are they still available?
1: Absolutely. absolutely. Yep. And uh, some of them are very appropriate. There are patients out there that, as you well know, have congestive heart failure. They have COPD. They have a variety of problems. They're on Coumadin, Plavix, aspirin, and you name it. And sometimes I tell them, you know, sir, I think a truss is going to be the safest and best option for you.
0: Hmm. Okay. You mentioned recurrent hernias. Um, sounds like mesh has cut down the uh, frequency of that, but mm-hmm. do you still see recurrence?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. It's very commonplace, and it's one of these things that we got to be careful. we got to put the mesh in the right spot. we got to sew things together, but we need a compliant patient. I've had some people call me up and say, Doc, it was great. I played tennis the next day. And it's like, is that what I told you to do? That's not what I'm looking for. You need to let this scar in because once the mesh gets scarred in in the right spot, That's usually it, game, set, and match, if you will, as a tennis analogy. But if people don't behave themselves early on um, or we don't do the right operation, there are times with a big hernia or whatnot that there's just going to be higher risk. It does happen.
0: In someone who needs a second procedure, are you able to again do laparoscopic or is that indication for an open?
1: Yeah, great question. It depends on how the operation was done the first time. Mm-hmm. So if somebody had an open operation from the front, I'm delighted to go in the back laparoscopically because it's a virgin plane and easy to do. If they've had a laparoscopic procedure from the back or the inside, then I go from the front on the outside and we try to avoid those planes. Can it be done? Yes, it can be done. It's harder and more difficult. And the robot now, we do have a lot of surgeons, and I've done some of them, but I actually like the laparoscopic approach. But robotic surgery has changed things for us as well when a recurrence happens.
0: Yeah, we haven't talked about that. Is that used often in uh, management of hernias?
1: I wouldn't say often. If there's 100 people today that are going to get their hernia fixed in the United States, probably at least 80% of them are going to get an open Lichtenstein hernia repair. But Mm -hmm. 20% are going to get a minimally invasive approach And historically, that would have been 20% of a laparoscopic thing. But now there's the robot involved, and there will be a couple percentage points, and that's ever-increasing.
0: What are the advantages in robotic surgery?
1: The robot, the optics are absolutely phenomenal. It's like walking into it and realizing you had the wrong prescription all your life. It's phenomenal. It allows your hands to work better than they do laparoscopically. The downside is right now there is no haptic feedback. So when my hands are moving that gadget and I'm touching bone or bladder or the iliac vein, I can see something move, not bone, it won't give. I don't have any idea how hard I'm pushing, and that can be dangerous. So you got to mm-hmm. be really careful starting out.
0: This is a little bit off topic, but do you ever see surgeons doing robotic surgery on a patient 500,000 miles away?
1: We have some of those things that uh, it's been done laparoscopically and robotically. Um, it was done from New York to Paris, you know, across mm-hmm. the ocean. Uh, Technology is an amazing it thing. We get, I get a little nervous thinking about it. I've never done that. But the lag time that must exist sometimes is a second or so. But um, it's, it's futuristic. People are talking about what happens if an astronaut gets a problem on the moon. You sure. know, can we set them down into a little cubby and take out the appendix. And the answer is probably
0: yes. Fascinating topic. One last question. Occasionally, we see patients who have had uh, inguinal hernia repair and then come back and say, I still have pain. We don't see it very often. What What's going on there? Yeah.
1: Well, unfortunately for me, I do see it often. There's a lot of people that come to the Mayo Clinic with groin pain. So first and foremost, when we evaluate people for hernia, I ask about pain. And when we're all said and done, I get nervous to say, that sounds like maybe it's a a back problem or there's maybe something else going on. And I try to consent my patient to say, I'm good at fixing hernias, and I will fix this hernia. What I don't know, sir or ma'am, is whether the pain that you're having is going to go away. Now, typically, if it's that sort of storied uh, history, getting up in the morning, achiness through the day, eventually a bulge, and that bulge pops in and out, it's painful, we're good at fixing that. Somebody that says, eh, I play soccer, I twisted and whatnot, and now I got a bulge and I, I think that's it, I'm nervous. There's all sorts of problems with hip and tendons and muscle that we don't fix, and that's important fact.
0: Yep. Well, we've been discussing hernias and their management with Dr. David Farley, a general surgeon at Mayo Clinic. David, thank you so much for sharing your expertise. My pleasure, Daryl. Join us here weekly at Mayo Clinic Talks. You can now access and listen to over 100 different podcasts covering a variety of medical topics pertinent to the primary care provider. You can hear us at ce.mayo.edu, iTunes, or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks' podcasts, please subscribe Stay healthy and see you next week.